Welcome to the Lifehouse Podcast. Our aim is that together we can love God, love others as we walk each step with Christ. We hope you find this message practical, encouraging and life-giving. Be blessed. I turned 40 this year and uh, I'm still trying to work out if it's a good thing or not. I feel good for my age, I feel fit, I feel healthy, I feel strong and rearing and ready to go and looking forward to still working towards, uh, you know, planting a school in Gifford Hill and maybe planting more churches, uh, different campuses and uh, so I'm definitely not feeling like I need to start slowing down, I'm feeling like I want to ramp things up and, you know, get into things but I don't know if you noticed that at the start of that sort of statement, I had to say, I feel good for my age. Normally, I never had to do that before. It was just like, I feel good, I feel fit, I feel healthy. But now I have to have that little kind of thing there where I say, you know, you know probably compared to, to Tamsin, I have to say, I feel good for my age because I don't know that I could necessarily do all the things that, that she could do, the passion that, that she has. So for those of you that are maybe in a little bit of denial, like me, that you're getting older, I've got a, uh, a list of some things uh, that uh, maybe are indications for you to know that you're maybe getting a little bit older. So you know you're getting older when everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. <laughs> you know you're getting older when your mind makes contracts your body can't meet. You know you're getting older when you are looking forward to a dull evening. You know you're getting older when you turn out the lights for economic rather than romantic reasons. You know you're getting older when your knees buckle and your belt won't. You know you're getting older when your back goes out more than you do. You know you're getting older when you sink your teeth into a steak and they stay there. (laughs) You know you're getting older when you know all the answers but nobody asks you the questions. This one's a little bit close to home for me. You know you're getting older when you are proud of your lawnmower. (laughs) You know you're getting older when you constantly talk about the price of petrol. You know you're getting older when you can't remember the last time you lay on the floor to watch TV. And you know you're getting older when you have a party and the neighbours don't even realise it. So if you can relate to some or all of those things, then maybe... You're feeling though as though you're kind of past your use-by date. But here's the good thing when it comes to the kingdom of God. There is no use-by date in the kingdom of God. That eternity is actually forever. That old age isn't actually just some disease that you catch. In fact, just the opposite. Proverbs 16.31 says, Old age with wisdom 
will crown you with dignity and honour, for it takes a lifetime of righteousness to acquire it. So today we are delving into this message that we are calling Revival. Because there is an inner vitality that actually comes through following Jesus. And we see this in 2 Corinthians uh, 4.16. It says, no wonder we don't give up. For those of you that are maybe thinking about giving up or have already gone past the point of giving up, this is reason not to give up. And for those of you that are young in the room, this is reason to hold on to for the rest of your life. For even though our outward person gradually wears out, our inner being is renewed every single day. So no matter how old or young we are, we need our inner being to be renewed. We need it to be revived. Not because we are getting old, but because as descendants of Adam and Eve, we all contain death within us, so we need to be revived. Now, the word revival has been used a lot by Christians, and particularly Pentecostal Christians, and we love to, to say you know, this word to kind of indicate the fact that we want to see people one for Christ, and that is a, that is a good thing, and that is a great thing. But people would set up, you know, revival prayer nights and revival tent meetings and they would do all these things around this word revival trying to get people saved without actually stopping to think about the fact that that really what God is calling us to is to make disciples that it's not just about a one-off event where people get saved but it is actually a lifetime of discipleship of being disciples and making disciples that God calls us to. That this idea of revival is, as uh, Dave Schultz already said, it is a personal, individual and a daily thing that all of us need to be a part of. See, if we are to follow the Great Commission, where Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, he said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. We see that discipleship is our job, but yes, revival is his job. But for Jesus, it was never about the crowd. It was never about just trying to have big numbers in a short amount of time that revival has come to mean for so many. But a a moment-by-moment lifestyle daily occurrence where we need Jesus to come and revive us, to come and breathe his life into us and onto us. He comes and breathes his life onto old, dry, weary bones, reviving dead and hopeless situations. You see, that word revival is an interesting one. Tomorrow, a whole bunch of our staff are going to uh, partake in a, in a mental health first aid course. And among other things, I'm sure one of the things that they're going to, to learn how to do is how to revive someone. How to breathe that, that breath of life into someone once they have stopped breathing. 
Because when someone stops breathing, it seems like that that is the most final thing, that that is the end of everything. But even when everything in the natural seems like it's come to an end, that revival breath comes and breathes new life and life eternal into us and onto us. And that is really what the essence of revival is. And so I've got two friends that are going to come up and share how God has done that in their life and how God can breathe those revival moments when everything seems like it's come to an end into your life and into your situation. So Howard, if you'd like to come and share. Would you welcome him as he comes? Yeah, I could do with a bit of reviving from time to time, <laughs> seeing I'm 81. Well, good morning, you beautiful people. <laughs> do you realise that you are beautiful? You are beautiful in God's sight. He loves you. He said, he said so many times in his word. He loves you with a never-ending love. What's that do for you? It just means that uh, you are in his mind. You are in his heart. He's brought you into this world. He's kept you to this point. He's watched over you. He's looked after you. And uh, I'm here to talk about that this morning, just how he's looked after me. I believe that um, God is a miracle-working God. And he's not finished with that. Miracles are not over and done with. You're a miracle. This church is a miracle. It's amazing how this church started. I don't know whether you've ever heard the story. I'm not going to tell it this morning. But it was a miracle. Trust me. This building was a miracle. The way it got renovated was a miracle. The fact is that God is into the miracle working business and he's not finished with it yet. And you know... I thought to myself, uh, how can I explain that? How can I explain that? And I asked God a question when I was in a prayer time. And I said, God, what does this church need most? And you know what he said? He needs you. And he needs double that number, triple, quadruple that number. How many people are there that need Christ in this town of Murray Bridge? There'll be thousands, and it's up to you. It's up to you to hear what God has got to say to you. It's up to you to follow what the Spirit of God is leading you to do. And how can I, how can I stand here and tell you that God loves you? Because I've experienced it myself. I'm a, I'm a particularly unlovable person when I was little. When I was a little kid, I was a monster. And uh, my, even, even my father said, uh, I, I just wish I could chuck him out the window. <laughs> I was so, so hard to get on with, it was incredible. But the fact is that God loved me and he had a use for me. He had a job for me. So my parents read me anyway. Thank you all for that. <laughs> and 
the fact is, you know, as I stand here today, I can tell you that I have seen many miracles in my life. And if we went around this congregation this morning, I can tell you now that every one of you has seen a miracle of some sort. It's, it's just how it is. It's the, in the spiritual realm, God does miracles today. And he will do it in the future. It all depends on your attitude and it all depends on the work you're prepared to put in. You get down on your knees, you cry out to God, you get alone by yourself and pray and, and petition God and ask. You don't, you don't receive unless you ask. And that's what we can do today. We can ask God for a miracle in relation to, we're talking about revival, aren't we, really? We can't, we can't um, bring out a revival. It's only God can do that. He can, he can use you, but uh, we can't do it on our own. We've got to be in partnership with God. I want to tell you about a miracle that I saw years ago. I was on a farm uh, with my family, uh, my mum and my dad and my older brother, uh, my younger brother, and we were operating this dairy farm out on Mobilongantura Swamp. And um, uh, we were in a bit of strife. We'd uh, bought another farm, we had one, and we bought another farm. Uh, financially, <laughs> we were in deep trouble. There's no question about that. And uh, we looked like we were going to go broke. And... We, uh, I said to my older brother, what are we going to do? Because we were experiencing a dry year. Uh, there was no rain. Murray Bridges can be a bit like that, can't it? There was no rain. It was dry. We ran out of feed. We had stock to feed. We had cows to feed, uh, young heifers to rear. No feed to give them. Um, we used, um, would you believe, um, we had... Uh, uh, an advice from a farm management consultant and he said, well, the only thing you can do is to feed them chicken litter. Believe it or not, chicken litter. And uh, that's exactly what we did and we kept our stock alive like that. But the thing was that we needed something special. We needed some green feed for the cattle. So we ripped up one of the swamps, we planted... Uh, what they call millet. Millet is a, a cereal that grows probably that high and uh, it has copious amounts of seed when it uh, goes to seed. It is an amazing plant. We planted it on the swamp and uh, uh, down on the river flats it grows really well and uh, it had just come up. I can, I can see it in my mind's eye now. It was about that high, about like that probably 9,500 mil high. And um, one day we'd finished milking the cows. This is one morning. It was in the, in the uh, early summer. And we'd finished milking the cows and I was walking. I'd gone and had my breakfast and, and uh, walking back to the dairy and I heard this sound, amazing sound, a sound that I wasn't familiar with. It was a sound that was uh, like a, it, an encompassing sound. It was just a, a, a roar, a roar, like a, a quiet roar, but a roar. And 
I looked up and I saw from the north, the wind was blowing from the north, by the way, I looked up and I saw uh, this cloud approaching from the north. Guess what it was? Grasshoppers. Thousands upon thousands and millions of grasshoppers. Oh no, my heart sunk. And I thought, oh no, they're going to strip every little piece of green that we've got on the farm. And we needed it. We needed the feed. We needed, we were in trouble, really. Not only uh, physically, but we were in trouble financially as well. And I prayed. I was, in the, I was standing out in the middle of the yard and I just prayed, Oh God, help us, help us. And we, need, we need a miracle to stop these grasshoppers eating our, our, our precious pasture. And um, I went on and did my work. I had to clean up the dairy. And um, I thought, oh, no, we're going to be in worse trouble than we are now. What's going to happen next? And uh, later on in that morning, it was, it was quite warm and windy. And I went down to the swamp, down to the Murray Flats, and there I got a, a most pleasant surprise. The millet crop was not eaten. It had not been eaten. It had been nibbled. The, the top of the, the, the leaves had been eaten off about by that much. And the rest of the crop was there, but the grasshoppers had gone. You know what was there? There was a bird called an ibis. Who knows what an ibis is? It's a, it's a bird that um, searches through the, uh, the swamps and that to retrieve uh, yabbies. It's got a curved beak. It's a white bird, quite a big bird. And uh, all these ibises had come and they settled on the, on the irrigated flats of the River Murray. And there wasn't one or two, there were hundreds and hundreds of ibis. I had never, I, I lived on the dairy for 20 years. I had never seen so many ibis in my life. There were hundreds of them. And they had eaten the grasshoppers by the thousand. And on the ground, when I looked on the ground, the ground was covered with grasshopper legs. They had separate they had separated the legs from the bodies and eaten the bodies and left the legs. How they did that, I don't know. But God is a miracle working God, is he not? The fact is that uh, uh, that crop came to maturity. It's, it, it provided the feed and the, through strip grazing. You just give the cows a little bit of it every day and it provided that and we were saved by that crop of millet. Now that is a miracle and God provided. How did it come about? I prayed. God answered my prayer. You know, I would just, I would just love to have a service where we heard everybody's miracle. It would be great because God is a miracle working God. And the fact is that you're here today because it's a miracle. Now look, 
Um, as I wind up today, be, uh, I just want to tell you that uh, God has not finished with you yet either. Okay, so I'm old. But God hasn't finished with me either. I still, I'm still able to pray. I'm still able to cry out to God. I'm still able to get down on my knees. I've got to have help to get up. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I can pray. And I'm, I just encourage you. I implore you people. I implore you. You have power and authority. You don't understand what you've got. We are an amazing group of people. And we can do wonderful things through the power and authority of God. So go home. When you go home, cry out, cry out to God for this place. Yeah, we, of course we want to see a miracle. We want to see, we want to see people enjoy what we enjoy. We come here and we enjoy the preaching, we enjoy the music, we enjoy the company and all these things that we've got. And we got them because God wanted it that way. And he's not finished with you yet. He wants you to be a part of the next miracle for this property, for this church, for this congregation. Will you do that? That's good. Okay, bye. Thank you, Howard. Now Wayne is going to come and share. Thank you. In 2001, when we were still living in Tasmania, I left my place of work. I'd worked for 20 years. I was basically ready for a spell. I thought if I don't move and change jobs, I'll be stuck there till I retire. Um, one of the things, nice things that happened when I finished work is because I'd been there so long... Between the social club and the management, they gave me a set of golf clubs and I started playing a bit of golf. One morning, I dropped the kids off at school, went to the Seabrook Golf Course in Wynyard, Tasmania, uh, started playing on the back nine. It was a beautiful autumn day. Autumn is beautiful in Tasmania. And I was never a very good golfer, but the first three holes, things were going well. I was on par or close to, which is as good as I could get. Got to the fourth hole, which was a long par five, dog leg at the end, with a big row of gum trees up the right-hand side. Now, Tasmania grows proper trees, not like the Mallee scrub around here. So these are big trees. First shot, slice into the trees. A little bit of a grumble. Second shot, hit a tree. Bounce somewhere, lost ball. Third shot, same thing. The birds had stopped singing. The only bird I could hear sing was a kookaburra laughing. <laughs> All my good mood had evaporated and it was lucky the golf clubs didn't finish up in the Seabrook Creek. <laughs> we'll talk a bit more about that story later. The brief for today, as Josh and Howard have said, is revival. Of when we think there is no hope, but God comes through. In many ways, I've had a fortunate life. I haven't had the loss of a partner or a child. I haven't had a divorce. I haven't had a serious illness or accident. But I've had plenty of the daily grind of life. Uh, we've got four children, Sue and I, and 
by the time they were not quite teenagers between the four of them, they had had 18 operations, general anaesthetics. And I want to talk a bit about one of them, or a series of them today, with Jess. So Jess, our oldest daughter, when she was 11 months old uh, and started to try and walk, Sue noticed that this was something wrong, uh, something odd. So we went to the doctor and then got sent to a specialist. Uh, and the specialist was a really good surgeon, but like a few specialists, his bedside manner wasn't all that brilliant. So he said to us, this kid has got to go into hospital tomorrow. And uh, we found out that Jess had been born with, I've got to get this right, congenital bilateral dislocated hips. So when babies are born, they normally have what's called a click test to see if their hips are in place. And Jess had had that and supposedly passed. But the issue was that normally you have a ball and a socket for your hip, but Jess's was that far out that it didn't even click. So uh, if you want to put up that first photo, thanks, Peter. So this was Jess. So she went into hospital when she was uh, 11 and a bit months old and she was in what was called the London Bridge initially. And the first operation was uh, they cut her tendons and then gradually over three weeks they extended out that um, apparatus so her hips went further apart. She then had an operation to uh, put a plaster on, so if you want to stick the next one up, Peter. So this is plaster number two, I think. Sue will wave at me somewhere if that's right, can't even see her. Number two. The first one went from her toes up to her chest. The second one went from the ankles. So she had uh, two or three of these plasters for uh, a few months, and then she had one that went only to her uh, waist. And then she was in braces for another three months. If she didn't have it, she would have been uh, on limp, permanent limp, and probably had her first hip replaced by now. It was a tough time. I've been through where a company I worked for uh, went bankrupt and I lost my job overnight. I went through a redundancy, and in, in that time when I was waiting for my redundancy, uh, I finished up on antidepressants because of stress. We moved interstate and moved to Murray Bridge uh, and left my family and friends behind in Tassie. And that's tough and still is tough to uh, lose that network of acquaintances and all those experiences. But what sustains us when things are tough? My first point is God is able. Ephesians 3.20, if you want to stick it up, Peter says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. With Jess's hips, we hoped, we prayed, we cried, and it was a tough time. Uh, the hospital she went into was two hours from where we lived, and I uh, still had to work, so I would go up one day during the week, at night, after work, stay for a couple of hours, drive home again, and then went up on the weekend. The middle weekend, uh, and Sue was basically in the hospital the whole time, the middle weekend we thought we'd try and do something normal and went to church. And when we got back to church, Peter, can you put that first photo back up, please? When we got back, um, 
So Jess, that was how she was for um, three weeks. And she used to flip around and sometimes she'd flip herself and finish upside down. And when Sue was there, she'd just flip her back. When we got back from uh, ch the church, she must have been flipping around and a nurse had tied her down so she couldn't flip. And that was pretty stressful. And I remember feeling very low and thinking, in a sense, where is God in this? Is she going to get better? What's going to happen? And, you know, God was always a step ahead. Where the doctor said she'd been plaster for nine months, she was only in plaster for six months. When he said she'd have a brace for six months, she only had it for three months. We were sustained. We were sustained not only by God, but by our faith community. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. You know, we're not doing life on our own. We've got all of us to help us. When we have no hope, our faith community can restore us. There was a guy in the church, uh, Peter Reeve. Now, Peter Reeve, the closest I can think of an example in our congregation, he was a bit like Shane Denman. Always ready for a bit of a joke, a bit of a laugh, a bit of slap around. He's the sort of guy who... I could get in trouble for saying this, but he'd give you a nipple cripple quite often. <laughs> he actually gave me one at my mother's funerals. <laughs> he was that sort of guy. But he was the one who rang me one day and said, I'll drive you to Launceston so you don't have to do that by yourself. Our faith community can help us. Ephesians 3.20, it does not say to, he can do immeasurably more than ask or imagine unless you live in Calder, which was a tiny farming community we lived in. It doesn't say unless you live in Murray Bridge. It doesn't say, like our good friend Grant, I oh, know you've tried to commit suicide a couple of times, I can't help you. It doesn't say, ah, oh, no, sorry, I'm having a bad day today, I can't help you today. God says he can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. You know, I will never forget the day <clears throat> when I stood up in church, at old church in Boat Harbour, with Jess in my arms and could say, no more brace, no more plaster. And there wasn't a dry eye. The reason I always had hope is because God is able. Second point, Jesus is willing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for a joy set before him endured a cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus wrote the plan. John ch chapter 1 talks about Jesus being the word of life. Colossians chapter 1 talks about that Jesus is in all, is above all, is over all. Jesus created us, he made us, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's willing to give us hope. He wants to be with us. There's an old hymn, we're singing a few old ones this morning. There's an old hymn that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. My brothers and my sister in Tasmania, and I don't get to see them as much as I would like, 
But here I have some wonderful Christian brothers and sisters. We do life together. We laugh, we cry, we have fun, we share the joy of our faith together. And that is the relationship that Jesus wants with us. If you want to put that Hebrews 12 and 2 back up, please, Peter. It says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That joy that Jesus had before him when he went for the cross is the joy that he has in, our, in his relationship with us. He endured the cross so he can be in a relationship with us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 in the message says, Jesus doesn't hesitate to treat them as family, saying, I'll tell my good friends, my brothers and sisters, all I know about you. I'll join them in worship and praise to you. If you don't think about anything else this morning, think about this verse. That Jesus, King of heaven, Lord of lords, creator, sustainer of the universe, wants to be our brother. He wants to join in worship and praise with us. The point of my golf story, besides getting rid of a few nerves at the start, is that on that autumn day when I was playing golf, and all of a sudden I went from getting ball in in five or six shots to I probably lost count on that, the fifth hole. The golf balls didn't change. The club all of a sudden didn't become bent, although I was probably lucky it didn't. The only thing that changed is I lost focus and took my eye for ball. I changed. You know, sometimes we can do that. We can take our eyes off Jesus. We may feel a lack of hope because of the grind of life, the pressures of work, the pressures of marriage, the times when you spend uh, lying in bed at night wondering when your son's going to come home, if he's getting scraped off the road. I remember a time clearly when I had confessed to Jesus a sin I had done many times before. And I had this very clear picture of Jesus on the cross above me with his blood coming down and washing me and this, this sense that it's okay. My grace is sufficient. I'm willing to forgive, to restore, to give hope. Today you may be here and wish you weren't. You may be being overwhelmed by life. I would encourage you, look to Jesus. He wants to bring hope, to restore, to revive. Don't get me wrong. I know that sometimes this is not easy. When I was on antidepressants, I, was, I can remember it clearly. I was out in the foyer talking to David Schultz. He may not remember. And I said to him, I've been reading my Bible more and it may be... If I had done that, um, I wouldn't need antidepressants. And David looked at me and said, maybe you needed the antidepressants to get your brain right so that you could read your Bible. And that just helped me enormously. You know, sometimes all we can do is just give Jesus a sideways glance. 
we may hardly be able to get our head off the pillow or out of our situations, but he only needs a glance from us. Jesus is willing. That was a good catch, wasn't it? I did feel it slips at one stage a long time ago. Point three, the Father loves us. Matthew 27, 45 and 46. From a sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A few weeks ago, Mark Vortman was up here, and he talked about the enormous love and pride that he had when his daughter was born. And I can relate to that. I remember it clearly when Jessica was born. All of, and I didn't uh, enjoy babies before then. It hardly held one and would have ran away if someone tried to offer me one. But straight away, you had this enormous sense of um, protection and love. And I remember the nurse wife, the midwife, was um, trying to get just a, a breastfeed for the first time. And Jessica started crying and I had to restrain myself from sort of getting up and taking Jessica off this midwife. I remember when Mitchell, Mitchell, you want to just stand up for a minute? <laughs> so Mitchell, my youngest son, you can sit down now. <laughs> but I remember one night he came home from youth and this was before he grew uh, and said that two boys had sort of threatened to bash him up. And um, I sort of... Uh, my instinct was to go around and sort him out, but uh, probably Sue stopped me. And I left it to Ray and he sorted him out. <laughs> but instantly, that sense of protection came. You know, that is why to me, this passage, if you want to put it back up, Peter, is so powerful. What is going on that Jesus feels that God the Father has turned his back on him? Why has there been darkness for three hours? And I think the point is that God could not bear to watch as our sin fell upon Jesus. I had an anger problem and still probably do. It's under control. And it, wasn't, it was only recently when my two older sons, Luke and Tom, were talking about how they were scared of me at times when I know little. And Mitchell said that he could never remember that. And maybe Mitchell was born to finally drive me to God to cure my anger. And you can probably interpret that in a few ways. <laughs> but my anger, <coughs> my abruptness, my rudeness, all of my sin is what was on Jesus as God the Father turned his back because he couldn't bear and watch that. God and Jesus endured for the joy of having us in relationship. And that is why I always have hope. God is able. Jesus is willing. God the Father loves us. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. I think for me, the scariest moment in my life was when Belinda stopped breathing. And I held her lifeless body in my arms. And in that moment, 
I didn't have time to go through all the theology of prayer. I didn't have time to do an exegesis of faith. All I had was one breath in my lungs. And so with that one breath, I used it to simply say one word. I simply cried out the name of Jesus. And as that breath came out of my lungs and as I spoke the name of Jesus, it was like Jesus himself revived her. She came back and what seemed like the end, what seemed like was all over as she had stopped breathing, then became the story of new life, new life found in Christ. That's what revival is all about. Even death for us as Christians is not the end. It's not a full stop. It is simply a comma. A comma just says it's time to to stop and, and breathe because when we breathe our last breath here on earth, the next breath that we breathe is in heaven. Even what seems like the end is not the end for God. It says in Genesis 2 verse 7, it says, Then God formed a person from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life so that he became a living being. All life started with the breath of God, started with him breathing life into us in the beginning. And I don't know what your view of God is. Maybe you think God is just an old grumpy guy. And this week on Friday I was down walking Charlie down at the river as I always do and a a lady that I know that I often uh, stop and speak to, we, we stop and spoke again and she said something interesting. She said, you know, Josh, I've, I've come to, to realize something that the older men seem to get, the grumpier they seem to get. I kind of thought, and maybe the more judgmental women get. <laughs> but, but she said, I don't know, I think that she was trying to say this as a compliment, but she said, I don't know any older men who aren't grumpy apart from you (laughs) but she said how is that possible how is it possible that you don't seem to get grumpy you don't seem to have this life doesn't seem to wear you down you seem to have this vitality in you And I was able to share the love and the hope of Jesus with her. I invited her to our Christmas festival and she said that she's going to come. But maybe for you, you think that if the older people get, the grumpier they get, God is the oldest person, so he is the grumpiest person there is. But that's not true. You know, sometimes we try to avoid speaking to people who we think are grumpy. We don't, want to, we don't want to speak with them. We don't want to communicate with them for fear of the retaliation that's going to come back if we say something wrong. And, 
in the Old Testament, you know, the, the Jews wouldn't even say the name of God. Possibly for fear of what was going to come. Maybe they thought that he was like those grumpy men that this lady had met. And because of that, we don't even know how to say the name of God. All we have in the scriptures is four letters, if we can have that picture up. Four letters. Y-H-V-H. How you pronounce it in, in Hebrew is those four letters is yod Hey, vav hey. But I don't think that God doesn't want us to know his name. I don't think that God is mean and angry. I don't think that God is distant. So even though we don't know what the vowels are in between those consonants, even though we don't know how to say the name of God, I think there's something very interesting that is happening here because those four letters are actually, of all the four letters that God could have used to describe himself, those four letters in Hebrew are the sound of breathing in and out. Yod, hey, va, hey, yod, hey, va, hey. That maybe God doesn't want to be distant that maybe God didn't reveal his name because he wanted his name to be as close to us as our very next breath. That all of us need that revival breath to come and breathe life and breathe hope when everything seems like it's dead, when everything seems like it's done and finished. We need the breath of God to come and breathe upon us. Would you all like to stand? And we're going to pray. And if that's you this morning, if you've got situations and circumstances in your life that seem hopeless, that seem as though they've died, that seem as though that there is no hope left, that there is no answer to the questions that you've been asking, then today, right now, we're going to invite the breath of heaven, the revival breath to come and breathe upon you to breathe upon that situation, to breathe upon that circumstance. Because the end is not the end with God. The end with man is the beginning of where God comes and breathes His new life into that hopeless situation. So Father God, we, we thank You for life and life eternal. We thank you for your new life that can only be found in Christ. And Father, as all of us in this room think of those situations, those circumstances in our lives that seem as though it's at the end, Lord, come and breathe. Come and breathe that revival life into each and every one of us whether we've come for the first time, whether we haven't known God before, or whether we've been here like Howard from the very beginning, from day one. Lord, all of us in this room need that life 
that revival breath to come and breathe upon us now. Breathe upon our situations and our circumstances. That you may revive them and bring life and life eternal to our dry and weary bones. So Father, we sing of your praises now. Thank you for joining us this week. If you wish to connect with us, please send an email to info at life.house or come and see us at 170 Adelaide Road, Murray Bridge. And remember, the door is always open for you at Lifehouse. God's house, our home.